When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Book Riot's Read Harder Journal. Created by Book Riot, this smartly designed reading log consists of entry pages to record stats, impressions, and reviews of each book that you read, and it is a great gift for readers this holiday season. Interspersed among the entry pages are 12 challenges inspired by Book Riot's annual Read Harder initiative, which began in 2015 to encourage readers to pick up passed over books, try new genres, and choose titles from a wider range of voices and perspectives. Indulge your inner book nerd and read a book about books, get a new perspective on current events by reading a book written by an immigrant, find a hidden gem by reading a book published by an independent press, and so much more. Each challenge includes an inspiring quote, an explanation of why the challenge will prove rewarding, and five book recommendations that fulfill the challenge. Get one for yourself or for the reader in your life at bookriot.com slash journal. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording this week's episode on Wednesday, December 4th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, somewhat panicking now that you said it's December 4th. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so close to the end of the year. I know, it's terrifying. Do you remember when I was like, I have, as of August, assigned myself a reading challenge for the end of the year, and I was like, I know this is a stupid idea, but now I'm really committed to it? I remember that you were going to do it. I don't remember the specifics, though. It was that I wanted to hit 100 books by the end of the year, because mm. this year I was very like, just read when you feel like it. It's fine. Don't put pressure on yourself. And then I decided in the last four months to put a lot of pressure on myself. <laughs> so I'm like... 12 or 13 books from hitting that. Are you serious? That's amazing. But now I have to read 12 or 13 books in the next 27 days, which is uh, like a book every two point something days. So I'm um, so impressed with you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to be leaning heavily on comic volumes and we'll Mm, see if this can get done. Yeah, I was just looking it up as you were talking. I was trying to see how many books I have read so far this year. And uh, right now I'm at 75, uh, which is... You could do Good, it. Good, but it's a little low for me. I definitely am not going to hit 100. <laughs> I mean, book a day. Just <laughs> be like Tolstoy <laughs> in the purple chair. Go for it. <laughs> oh, if only I didn't have to, like, go to my job or anything like that. Oh, I forgot about and that. But then I could read a book a day. That would be excellent, wouldn't it? I'm also doing really bad on some of my other reading goals. I remember setting, like, reading 40 of my own books. Uh, that's a joke. I definitely have not done that. Well, no, that's not true. So I have read like 48 books that I personally own, but the vast majority of those are new books that were published in 2019 that I bought and then read. So I have not read much off of my backlist. That's still a win, (laughs) though. You still like bought the books and then read them, which I think is great. Yeah, that's better than buying the books and not reading them, which is another thing that I do a lot of all the time. The other, I think the other goal I remember setting was that I was going to try to read a lot of audiobooks. And so far, I've finished 16 audiobooks. So. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's pretty good. Huh. A lot of YA on audio this year, it looks like. But 
Yeah. Well, I'm really impressed that you're that close to finishing 100 books. That's really great. Thank you so much. Do you have any follow-up this week? I do. Yes. Thank you. Um, so last week, I think in reading now, I mentioned that I was reading um, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, which is a memoir that came out this year from Grey Wolf Press. And I finished it and I wanted to say that it is amazing and I highly recommend it. Um, it's a memoir about um, her. Um, she f- finds herself in a queer abusive relationship. And so the book is about that relationship, but it's also about like how little queer abusive relationships are really talked about. Um, and she, she writes every sort of like chapter or vignette in a different style. So there's some that read kind of like academic texts. Uh, there's one that reads like a choose your own adventure story. Um, there's a lot, you know, the some that read like fairy tales and it's just, it's really inventive and interesting. And the story is, um, it's, it's tough to read in parts, but it's so well done that I just, I flew through it. I thought it was really great. So if you are not triggered by the idea of a, a domestic abuse memoir, uh, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado is amazing and I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm 100% adding that to my list and I will read it. I will. Uh, with that, our first sponsor for the episode is Book Riot's Read Harder 2020 Challenge, just in time as of December. Here we go. Book Riot's annual challenge is back. Once again, Read Harder 2020 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. Man, I'm really excited about the Read Harder Challenge. I'm just going to do that as a sidebar. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Uh, Other sidebar, it definitely will. I have mm-hmm. uh, done this uh, a little – I haven't – I didn't complete it, but I've done some of it before, and it was awesome for making me push myself into new genres that I normally just don't look at. Uh, mm-hmm. Read historical fiction that's not about World War II, a retelling of a classic or fairy tale, horror from indie presses, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge. I'm super excited about Read Harder, and they have some good um, – there's three nonfiction-specific challenges in there, and then there's a bunch of them that you could complete by reading nonfiction. So um, I think that's really kind of a fun, too, that there's lots of different ways you can go at getting at the different tasks for the challenge. Agreed. Excellent. Um, so with that, we're going to do um, – we're going to skip nonfiction in the news this week because it's been just kind of slow and we didn't find anything we were super jazzed about. Um, and we're going to do an abbreviated new book section because we really want to spend time on this week's theme, which is to talk about best nonfiction of the decade. So um, we're going to get to that in a little bit. But first, we each have one new book because um, there are some fun things coming out, even though December things really seem to slow down in publishing, which is nice because you feel like you can kind of – Catch your breath a little bit before we go into the new year. So, um, Alice, I'll let you go first with your new book. Yeah, 100%. I am picking for this week. They're never going to stop publishing Revolutionary War books in America. It's just going to happen maybe every month for forever. So (laughs) with that in mind, I'm still excited when they come out. I don't know why. I'm really interested in – I guess just late 1700s America. So my pick is A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution by David Head. It's published by Pegasus Books. It is out now. So this is basically like the war is over. Hooray. Everything's fine now. Or is it? So George Washington is dealing with this fact that um, 
right as they're like ending the war, the British have surrendered at Yorktown. Um, they're negotiating peace in Europe, but the government is broke. They paid their debts with these loans from France that then, of course, precipitated the French Revolution, but that's not what we're talking about today. And um, there was this like political rivalry among the states because they hadn't quite gotten this idea right about like the United States. It was more like each state was kind of its own little country um, in a way. So these uh, army officers that were near Newburgh, New York, um, and just kind of like, well, we're used to fighting and we are, you know, not getting paid and all this stuff. So they uh, and they were mad because the civilian population was kind of like, yeah, 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 you fought this war or whatever. And so they felt um, very unappreciated. And so the result of this was the Newburgh Conspiracy, which is where the Continental Army officers may have collaborated with nationalist-minded politicians. So nationalist-minded meaning, you know, people who were very um, interested in a strong central government. So people like Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Robert Morris. Um, and so they, the so-called conspiracy is supposed to uh, pressure Congress and the states to approve new taxes and strengthen the central government. And what this book, A Crisis of Peace, um, is kind of focusing on is whether or not there was a conspiracy and which I am not going to tell you all if there was or not, you should look at it and, um, basically shows uh, how George Washington, uh, led that whole, um, crisis, uh, a crisis of peace, if you will. Um, and it talks about how the American revolution actually ended, which was with a lot of, uh, quote, fiscal turmoil, political unrest, out of control, conspiracy thinking, and suspicions between soldiers and civilians so strong that peace almost failed to bring true independence. So it's kind of this um very dramatic episode, right? At right at the when you think everything has finally come to a close, but of course it hasn't. So again, that is a crisis of peace: George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the fate of the American Revolution by David Head. Sounds excellent. Like one of those movies where like you think it's the ending and everything's like, oh, hooray. And they're going to like, I don't know, ride off into the sunset or whatever. And then you get the like ominous music and it's like, just kidding. And then like something bad happens again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good, actually. Uh, cool. So I, uh, the book that I'm going to talk about is, I guess related a little bit. Um, it's called America for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States by Erica Lee. And it came out in November, um, from basic books. And so the reason this book caught my attention is actually because of Erica Lee's previous book, which I have not read, but that everyone who has read has really recommended. Um, and that book was called The Making of Asian America, which was a whole look at the history of Asian Americans and their role in American life starting in the 1500s and coming to today. Um, and she specifically looks a lot at the last 50 years and how um, Asian Americans have shifted from what she calls despised minorities to model minorities. Um and that book has gotten a lot of really good uh, recommendations from people that I trust. So when I saw this book coming out, I was excited about it and I thought it would be a good one to pick up. And so, um, like the subtitle says, the book is a history of xenophobia in the United States. Um, and so she is arguing that although xenophobia and racist, uh, language and, and all of this seems like it is kind of flaring up now and getting worse, it's actually, her argument is that it's actually embedded in like the entire history of the United States and it's sort of underneath a lot of things that have already happened. Um, and so 
she that this uh, irrational fear or hatred or hostility towards immigrants has been what she says is a defining feature of our nation from the colonial era until today. So um, the book starts with Benjamin Franklin and how he uh, hated Germans and didn't think that German immigrants should come to the United States. And then how it went from Germans to Irish Catholics to Chinese people to the Japanese to Japanese people to Mexicans to Muslims and Latinos and how xenophobia has just been a part of America since the beginning of America, basically. Um, and it is really, it's really fascinating so far. Um, it gives you, I think, I think we don't like to always talk about the darker side of historical figures, you know, like, especially like revolutionary war heroes, we sort of hold them up on pedestals and don't really want to talk about how they were slaveholders or how they held these beliefs that now we we don't support or don't agree with anymore. Um, and so seeing that and how xenophobia really is built into a lot of our institutions was, has been interesting to me and, um, you know, shocking and not really shocking at all in the same time, if that makes any sense. So um, the book looks at how xenophobia actually works, like how these conversations contribute to American life, um, why it continues to be a part of the things that we're talking about, and how it is a threat to the country, um, which is I haven't gotten all the way through yet. So I don't know kind of the ending arguments there. But (laughs) although I guess I can make assumptions based on the way the world is today. But um, it's really interesting. And I think an important and relevant book right now. So um, yeah, that is America for Americans, a history of xenophobia in the United States by Erica Lee. That sounds so good. Kim, you were just like knocking it out of the park this episode. (laughs) I'm very impressed. Uh, excellent. All right. So uh, with that, we will do our second sponsor real quick before we get into the real meat of the episode. Uh, and this other ne- or next sponsor is also uh, from Book Riot. We are being sponsored by Book Riot's TBR, which is Tailored Book Recommendations. Uh, so TBR is a subscription service offering tailored book recommendations for readers of all stripes. Uh, if you have ever dreamed of a stitch fix for books, then uh, this the service is for you. Um, you tell TBR about your reading preferences. You tell them what kind of books that you're looking for. And then you sit back while a bibliologist which is a word that I just love so much, uh, handpicks recommendations for you. Um, there are plans where you can actually receive hardcover books in the mail, or you can just receive some recommendations by email and then acquire the book in your own way. Um, so there are options for every single budget to get these great suggestions that are customized and picked just for you. So if you are interested, uh, you can visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. All right. And so as we uh, kind of alluded to before, uh, the big meat of this week's episode is thinking about best books of the decade. Um, and the reason, um, I don't know, <laughs> the end of the decade kind of snuck up on me. And then all of a sudden, there were all of these lists coming out of the best books of the decade, best fiction, best nonfiction, best memoirs, best TV shows. I mean, everything, there's best of the decade. And so we thought it would be fun. I thought it would be fun. And Alice agreed um, to look at some of the nonfiction lists of best of the decade and pick out some of the ones on those lists that we were most excited about or that we have loved and kind of talk about some favorites from the last 10 years. So um, the four lists that we looked at to kind of pick our books from um, was one from Paste Magazine, which did the best memoirs of the decade, um, Lit Hub, which had the 20 best works of nonfiction of the decade, uh, Time, which did their best nonfiction books of the decade, and then Entertainment Weekly also did a best nonfiction. So we looked at those four lists. We um, each came up with a list of like 10 or 15 books that we were very excited about, whittled each of our lists down to five. And so we're going to talk about five each from those combined lists. Did I sum that up correctly? Mostly. You did a great job. Excellent. And so Alice is going to go first since I've been talking for a while. 
So, yes, a nonfiction of the decade is a, a little bit daunting, but... It's so daunting. Oh, my God. <laughs> if Entertainment Weekly could do it, we can do it. So that's mm-hmm. – uh, especially if we're looking at their list. So my first pick for one of the best books of the decade, I'm actually astonished that this only came out in the last 10 years. I feel like it's been around for forever at this point. It is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot. Um, If you have not read it yet, let me tell you about it. So the book is about Henrietta Lacks and the immortal cell line, which is known as Gila, which, you know, is obviously named Henrietta Lacks Gila. Anyway, so this came from Lacks' cervical cancer cells in 1951. Um, She ended up passing away from cervical cancer. Um, These cells were taken without her knowledge in 1951 and became one of the most important tools in medicine, um, vital for developing the polio vaccine, cloning, gene mapping. Um, there are billions and billions of HeLa cells, but until Rebecca Skloot kind of heard about her in this, um, her biology textbook, she like saw this little side, like a photo of Henry Delax and this kind of like side note about her. And she decided to um, go on a, a journey to learn more and worked with her family. And it's a really moving Really well-written book um, that, again, I I recommend to basically everyone. So until this book came out again, she was not very known. Um, Now, most people, I would say, if you say Henrietta Lacks, would at least be like, oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. like that book. (laughs) That has something to Mm -hmm. do with cells. Um, So, yeah, I think that the – I would say now ubiquity is definitely worth a spot in the top ten. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think, too, it's a good – it's one of those great books that came out and you're like, if you don't like nonfiction, try this one. I think you'll like it. Um, and it's a really good recommendation for that kind of reader. I've had a lot of people who don't read a lot of nonfiction who kind of got excited about it after reading this book. So, um, yeah, I totally agree. The ubiquity of it definitely makes it, I think, a good one for this list. Um, so my first pick for um, a book that is a best nonfiction of the decade is a memoir, uh, When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalathani. And so uh, Paul Kalathani, uh, when he was 36 years old, he was right at the – he was almost done completing his training as a neurosurgeon um, when he was diagnosed with stage four – or yeah, stage four lung cancer. Um, so he went from being a doctor who treated cancer patients and neuroscience patients to be a patient struggling to live himself. Um, and he, the future that he and his wife had planned was was gone. And so the whole memoir is just kind of chronicling his life from uh, diagnosis to his eventual death. And about like what do we do in life when we are faced with impending death um when your future is no longer certain nothing that you have been working towards no longer matters no longer can matter because you're not going to live to see it like how do you live what 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 do you do with that um and so he and his wife they have a baby and he writes about becoming a father knowing that he has this terminal cancer and um and how he faces his mortality in that life. Um, and this is, it is a beautiful memoir. It is so beautifully written and it is so touching and it is, uh, so sad. Um, his wife writes either the forward or the afterward. I can't remember now. And it's just, it's, it's crushing, um, to know that somebody with like this beautiful voice, uh, is no longer here. And I, I picked this one because I loved it and it was a beautiful memoir, but also I feel like that's been kind of maybe a trend over the last 10 years is a lot of these memoirs about people with uh, either illness or disease or kind of facing their own mortality and that kind of thing. And I feel like there's been a lot of memoirs in that kind of 
arena. And this is just one of the, I think, really beautiful ones. So uh, that is When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Calfani. I'm really glad that you talk about those kinds of books because um, they are not what I naturally gravitate towards uh, due to being sad. But I think <laughs> that those are the types of feelings we probably need to, you know, process and deal with. And um, yeah. yeah, thanks for thanks for picking that, Kim. Um, my second pick is The Sixth Extinction and Unnatural History by Elizabeth Colbert. I love this book. It is, um, it, I think it's Chicago's, um, it's like Chicago Public Library picks like a, you know, book that everyone can, they have a bunch of copies of and people can read it. Um, mm-hmm. And this is their pick for right now because of the climate crisis. And so Elizabeth Colbert talks about how we are in the middle of the sixth extinction, which is um, over the last like half a billion years, there have been five mass extinctions where the um, diversity of life on Earth just suddenly uh, and dramatically contracts. And so due to the uh, huge number of uh, extinctions happening right now, uh, because we are in the middle of There are two names for it, the Holocene extinction, but it's also called the Anthropocene extinction because it is, uh, most people, I believe, are now in consensus being caused by humankind. So what she does is she breaks up different, like each chapter is about a different thing that is going extinct. So she talks to geologists who study uh, deep ocean cores, botanists who follow the tree line um, in the Andes, marine biologists with the who are working with the Great Barrier Reef. Um, and then she looks at the um, Panamanian golden frogs, staghorn coral, the great auk, which is um, a really cool bird for those who don't know it and the sumatran rhino and then she kind of talks about like what this means as well as talking about the history of the even like concept of extinction because of course originally people were maybe not of course but (laughs) originally people thought god created the number of animals that we have now and like all the types and they've always been here and they've we've never had an animal that has gone away because why would we and so in um i think it was the 18th century uh they like Georges Cuvier in Paris um was talking about this as an idea that sometimes we just lose animals and um flora fauna all that kind of stuff anyway so it is really important to read um i feel like i came away from it i've said this before but feeling not necessarily like despair but more um happiness that there are people who care about each of these things like there are people who care so much about the sumatran rhino and like that's their focus and there are people who care so so much about the panamanian golden frog and just the sort of um uh, i'm gonna say disparity let's just go with that word um of of interest and that the fact that we have people who will care about almost everything on this planet and that just made me feel really hopeful so again that is the sixth extinction an unnatural history by elizabeth colbert so glad you talked about that one because i every time you talk about it i think gosh i have to pick up that book and read it and it is on my shelf right now and i Right now, I'm like committing. I'm going to, I'm going to, that's going to be the next one. I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to read it because I know you love it so much. And I feel like the more we can understand about the climate crisis, the better right now, given like that koalas are so endangered because of forest fires in Australia. And oh, gosh, good. Excellent pick. I'm glad you grabbed that one. Turns out my second pick is also a medical book. I feel like I did read a lot of medical books over the last 10 years, but 
And, and I don't know why that is, but this is another really good one. So uh, The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Um, and so he is a uh, physician and a scientist, and he, in this book, is writing a, a biography of cancer. So it's a book about the the story of cancer, so how it um, how we first started to understand it, how it affects people, how diagnosis and um, treatment have changed and kind of not changed. Um, and he also, he is a, a physician, so he treats cancer patients. And so he writes really uh, warmly and thoughtfully and lovingly about his patients and kind of the decisions that he and they have to make in the face of a cancer diagnosis. Um, he does such a good job in this particular book of making really complicated science understandable. Like I finished, it's, this is a really big book. I think it's like 600 pages. Um, and a 600 page book about cancer like sounds <laughs> sounds terrifying actually, but it's, it's really, really good. And he makes the science of it super understandable. And also by writing about his patients in such a warm way, um, gives a kind of a human side to science. And when we talk about like a fight against cancer, he really humanizes that in a really clear way. Um, so the writing is beautiful. It's very emotionally resonant and it just has so many good facts in it that you want to just tell people about. I thought it was, um, it's just a stunning piece of work, a piece of science writing. And I, one of the other reasons I picked it is I really, I think in my, my own reading over the last like decade, my goodness, I've read a lot of books that are like a history of something really small and specific. And, um, so I picked this one as kind of a, a stand in for all of those different kinds of micro history types of books, even though this is a really big sprawling history of, of, of a disease. So, uh, that is The Emperor of All Maladies, a biography of cancer by Siddhartha Mukherjee. Feel like with that book, I see it as one of those very, very lauded, you know, like always on mm -hmm. some kind of list of like, this book is amazing uh, type things. Mm -hmm. I obviously have not read it. 600 pages does sound daunting, but it's nice to know that it is readable. It is. It's very readable. I think it moves efficiently. Awesome. My next pick, I, gosh, I really love this book. It is All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women, and the Rise of an Independent Nation by Rebecca Traister. Oh, okay. So basically, <laughs> this, so Rebecca Traister more recently wrote the book Good and Mad about the, I think it, is the mm -hmm. subtitle something like the revolutionary power of women's anger? I think so, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one sticks with you. Um, so this book, uh, All the Single Ladies, talks about what she initially thought was a new phenomenon of the sort of like American single woman. And then as she starts in her research about it, she talks about how she realized that this has always kind of been a thing and that people just haven't uh, talked about as much, I think, throughout our, our history in America, the let's say, life of the single woman. And so she started researching in um, 2009. So we'd like just get in to this 10-year thing with us. I mean, it came out more recently. But mm -hmm. so she talks about the sexual, economic, and emotional lives of single women. Um, starting in 2009, is that was the year that the proportion of American women who were married dropped below 50%. And the median age of first marriages, which had been like between 20 and 22 for almost a century, like 1890 to 1980, which is such a long period of time for that to stay the same, um, had suddenly risen to 27, which I would say in my own anecdotal evidence is accurate mm -hmm. if not older at this point maybe that it depends on where you live anyway so she basically said that 
historically, she when she was doing her research, she realized historically when women were given options beyond early heterosexual marriage, the results were this like massive social change. So we had like temperance and abolition and secondary education and all of this kind of like awesomeness happening. And um, as opposed to, you know, like you go to college and then as you leave college, you get married, which I think was more of sort of the idea we have of like the uh, 1950s, let's say. So today, only 20% of Americans are married by age 29, compared to nearly 60% in 1960. So um, yeah, the the age sort of keeps going up. And so this is uh, the unmarried, uh, I guess, especially women, because it's all the single ladies, um, is, is a very sort of important group to pay attention to. And she just talks about like all the cool things you can do. Sorry to just like devolve into general superlatives or whatever but it's really awesome and (laughs) everyone should read it just to get an idea of this large group in america and all of the possibilities that have um, either well all of the things that have happened in our past from that group and all of the possibilities going forward so again that is all the single ladies unmarried women and the rise of an independent nation by rebecca traster excellent that's another one that i just I haven't haven't read yet, and clearly I should because I I really do love Rebecca Traster. She's really smart and and a good researcher and journalist and the stuff that she's gonna write about. Uh, yeah, that one sounds really good. And man, twenty nine like that. Anecdotally, that doesn't surprise me, but it sort of does surprise me at the same time. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So my next pick is another kind of epic history book, which is interesting because I don't read a ton of epic history, but. Uh, here we are. So uh, the book is The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, and so this is a book about uh, the Great Migration, which is a period of time between 1915 and 1970 when almost 6 million African Americans migrated from the South to escape Jim Crow laws into um, cities in the American West and North and kind of all over the place. And this period of time when all of these um, African Americans were migrating changed basically the entire face of the United States. And all uh, a lot of social, civil, um, economic trends that we have today are directly because of the Great Migration and where and when and how people moved around during this period of time. So um, it is a really big story. And the way that Wilkerson kind of brings it down and makes it accessible is that she focuses on three people to kind of serve as examples and give some narrative shape to the story. So uh, one woman is a sharecropper who left Mississippi in 1937 to move to Chicago. Um, Another is a young man who leaves Florida and goes to Harlem in 1945 and works on trains. And then the third is a a doctor who left Louisiana in the 1950s to practice medicine in California. And so she uses these three people and their kind of amazing personal stories to um, give a shape and context to the Great Migration and look at all of the other people and um, trends that emerged from that. Um, And the thing about this book that I really admired at the time, and I think um, one of the reasons it has stuck with me as such an important book, is that she is so really good at showing how the effects of the Great Migration still impact us today. So, like, for example, uh, the designs of cities are directly impacted by the Great Migration because as more African-American people moved to the north, whites uh, left parts of the city. And so then that's why we had a lot of African-American people living in particular places, which affected the way that funding uh, for cities worked. And so just the way that cities are designed and the way that cities exist today is really affected by all the migration that happened during this period. So, um 
and just uh, all sorts of different things like that are really tied back to the Great Migration. And so that really um, comes through in the book and she kind of makes those connections. And then once you know that, I feel like I've seen those kinds of connections and impacts in a ton of other books that I've read. Um, like there's just kind of a tie back to how African-Americans came to that city in particular, and it shows up all over the place. And I thought it was really fascinating. So um, this is a book that I read it and I thought it was great. And then as I've read other books, it's really kind of always stuck in the back of my mind, the things I learned from this book. So uh, that I think makes it a really great book and kind of a good one to hold up as one of the best books of the decade. So that is um, The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. I need to give that one like another try because when I first started it, I was very much in a place of um, being very upset with what I called fictional nonfiction, right? Oh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. so, and I think there was some line at the beginning of it, like he like looked at the sun and wiped the sweat off his brow. And I was like, you have no <laughs> historical evidence for that. And so I put it away. And now I've been reading so much nonfiction where they're just legit making up things like for sure because they're like well i'm painting a picture of an impression of how it was and i'm fine with that now i'm like yeah no one actually really knows what happened in the past ever even like (laughs) really like well-documented stuff we don't know and i would say though like i don't have it in my notes but i know that she did a ton of interviews with people and did a ton of oral histories and research so like whether that particular kind of thing is true in terms of storytelling, like the general things that she's telling are well backed up and well researched for this particular book. So I accept it. <laughs> well, that's fine. Um, okay. My next pick. I feel like this book is so important. And the reason that I'm kind of laughing is because I'm like, I'm suddenly feeling overwhelmed with how important I think it is. And um, it's just causing some emotions. Okay, so this is The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. This book has impacted so many things. And okay, so the line at the very beginning, if you're looking at like the description of the book, I thought this was so good. I got to quote it. It's once in a great while, a book comes along that changes the way we see the world and helps to fuel a nationwide social movement. Like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's true. So, okay. First of all, Michelle Alexander is a, uh, a brilliant genius, if you will. And I have underlined so many things in this book, which, okay. So she wrote it during Obama's presidency. And so in that climate, right, she was like, everyone's saying, you know, we have this age of colorblindness, hence the subtitle, and that, you know, people, um, basically racism is over. And she was like, that's not true. Let me tell you why. So she talks about how we've always had these racial caste systems in America. And what she says is we have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. And the way we've done that is through our prison system. So this book, it helped inspire the creation of the Marshall Project, the $100 million Art for Justice Fund. It spawned this whole generation of criminal justice reform activists and organizations motivated by this argument, right, that like, the prison system as we now have it is just perpetuating this this racial caste system. So it talks about the whole drug war in the 1980s and how originally starting in like the 70s, if not earlier, they were talking about starting to close prisons because prison populations had been declining. And then it was around 300,000 
um, people. And then in less than 30 years, it went from 300,000 to more than 2 million people with drug convictions accounting for the majority of that increase. So um, in terms of incarceration, as of the time the book was written in um, Germany, (laughs) as an example, 93 people are in prison for every 100,000 adults and children. In the United States, that rate is roughly eight times higher, or 750 people per 100,000, which uh, is just insane, as well as the fact that um, studies show that people of all colors use and sell illegal drugs at really similar rates. But the the sort of um, percentage of those people um, who are people of color who end up in prison is, is of course, extremely um, out of whack with that uh, correlation. So there's just so much, again, like research, uh, amazing information that is just like blew my mind. I kept reading things out loud to um my fiance being like can you believe this can you believe this and like again this inspired things like um even Ava DuVernay's 13th that documentary which um I saw before I read the book and I was just in shock like the whole time watching that movie which by the way read the book watch 13th 13th is very good as well but anyway, uh, The New Jim Crow, I just feel like it's so important. There's a 10th anniversary edition coming out in late January. And uh, check it out. It is The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness by Michelle Alexander. So two things. First of all, when you said fiancé, I had to stop myself from squealing because <laughs> I'm still so excited for you. Uh, that is an aside. And second, I'm super glad you mentioned this one because, yeah, it showed up on a few of the different best of lists that we looked at. And I, I haven't read it, but just knowing kind of the conversations we're having and I've seen this book come up so many times as kind of a catalyst for a lot of those conversations about prison reform. And I think probably of all the books we've talked about, it has had the biggest impact and kind of ongoing um, impetus for social change. So I'm super glad that you talked about it. And I got to put it on my list of books that Alice recommends that I haven't read yet. You just summed that up so well, Kim. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. So the next book I'm going to talk about, I think actually has kind of an interesting companion if you wanted sort of a like serious nonfiction memoir, um, which is not to say memoirs are not serious, but more, I guess, academic nonfiction and memoir on kind of similar topics. I think this might be one that that could work. So uh, the book is Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward. Um, Jasmine Ward's a fiction writer, but this is a memoir that she did. Um, and uh, the kind of premise or the, the frame of the memoir is that uh, in a period of five years, she lost five young men in her life to drugs, accidents, suicide, and quote, the bad luck that can follow people who live in poverty, particularly black men. Um, and so as Jasmine Ward is trying to kind of come to understand how she lost these five young men that were important to her, she starts to ask just just why? Like, why is this happening? Um, and she starts to look at how their race and where they were from, how racism and economic struggle and poverty and addiction and dissolutions of families and how all of those things are wrapped up in each other and how they kind of build and feed on each other to really cut these men's lives short. Um, it's so heartbreaking to read and it is so beautifully done. And I, I remember reading it and feeling like she, is so close and so in these ma- in in this story that it's just um it's just a stunning work it's really it's it's beautiful and heartbreaking and i think 
Um, a good, a good, there are a lot of books that you could have picked if you were trying to come up with a book or two that would kind of talk about, um, the way that we are coming to understand race and, um, how it connects to all of these other social issues and stuff in the United States over this time. There's a lot of them that I think you could have picked, but, uh, this is one that I have read and really loved. So I'm letting it kind of stand in for, I think, a bunch of other books on that topic because I think that has been a conversation where finally, starting to have more of over the last decade or so, although there's clearly uh, so much more to go. Um, So that is Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward. Oh my gosh, Men We Reaped is so good. I am so glad you talked about that. Um, Yeah, that entire book, like, just stunned me. It's just gutting. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's so good. Oh gosh, okay. Just going to remain speechless on that. So my last pick is a book that uh, frequent listeners of this podcast will know well, but how can I not? First of all, I had to include a true crime one. And then also, um, let's just all honor Michelle McNamara and her legacy all the time. So this is I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. Um, the book was released posthumously. Michelle McNamara, um, passed away, uh, I believe in 2016. The book came out in 2018, which I don't know if it feels like it came out longer ago than that or i don't know like it came out early 2018 soon after which of course they caught the golden state killer which many people believe is uh because of the attention that michelle mcnamara um brought to the case she of course coined the golden state killer before he was called eron's which no one was going to remember and um the sort of knowledge about true crime and how um people's like attention to it works is um something that was so important and that that michelle mcnamara was very sort of keyed into and so she was like well we have to come up with a name for him that people will remember and then they will care about this incredibly terrible series of crimes that he wrought wreaked let's see anyway so, um, I'll be gone in the dark is, I would say, a, a modern true crime classic, sort of standing up there with, um, Helter Skelter and In Cold Blood. Um, if you're going to kind of go with like a top five, it's definitely even in the top, let's say three or four. And if you are able to handle, I would say, being, uh, very frightened sometimes, <laughs> then, um, pick it up if you can't handle. There are, Kim, would you say, like, in terms of, um, cause there's, it's definitely sexual violence in the book. Do you have remember any kind of specific warnings? No, although I think it um it's really scary and I I did not read this book in the dark when I was home by myself. Um I always <laughs> I read it during the day um because it's scary, but I I remember feeling like it's very um there's violence in it but it's not like lurid and it doesn't feel like it's exploiting people. Like it feels very carefully done and very respectful of the victims um which is something that i really respect about it because like that's not really true of say in cold blood like i as much as i i love that book and i think it's a great read um it is not particularly empathetic towards the victims in that when she's very careful about it so um i guess that doesn't answer your question about like specific trigger warnings because it's no that was helpful kind of violence of different things but i do think it is a more empathetic and thoughtful book when it comes to how it depicts victims of violence, which I appreciate about it and I think makes it kind of elevates it in the true crime genre. Oh, that was again so lovely. Oh gosh. <laughs> You're doing such a great job. Okay. Um so again, that is I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara. Excellent. That's yeah, that's a really good pick. I'm glad you got a true crime book in there because I definitely think true crime is 
having a resurgence thanks to cereal and all sorts of other stuff like that. So um, my last book is another kind of political one. It is called Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right by Jane Meyer. Uh, and this is a book uh, – it is exhaustively reported and sourced, and it is a look at the um, very small number of um, very rich – people who are um, almost entirely libertarians and their um, political influence because of money on institutions across the United States and through our government. So she um, looks at kind of how these big money donors who specifically target Republicans, um, how they work, how they get their money, what kind of kind of network that they have, and then how that network influences politics, um, and also like how their interests do not particularly align with the kind of interests and needs of what you might call like average GOP voters. Um, and it's a, it is a shock of a book. I mean, like, I knew going into it that like money influences politics and there are a lot of rich people that put a lot of money into having things happen the way that they want them to. But I just like did not really understand the scope or extent of it until I read this book and I I am um, I was shocked by it and I am so like concerned and I feel like even if you are a person who is a Republican or or leans that direction like we we should all be concerned that people who have this like vast money and these vast resources are shaping our government in such kind of insidious ways and and making it not really serve people well anymore um because what they what they want is just not of benefit to like society as a whole so um i think this one just in terms of like the exhaustive reporting is amazing um the the kind of scope of what it reveals is amazing and i think like as we look at like 2016 and what has happened since then like it's really clear the way that like people with money are are influencing and affecting and um shaping our government in a way that is not to the benefit of the vast majority of us since i think this book kind of gets at that in a really clear and um well, well researched way. So, uh, that is Dark Money, the, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right by Jane Mayer. Is it at all like a similar tone to something like Bad Blood? Um, I think Bad Blood has a little bit of a sense of like fun to it. Um, this one really doesn't. It's very, it's pretty serious. Um, which is not to say that it's not readable. Like Jane Mayer writes for the New Yorker, I think. And so she's a really good writer, but it's definitely not. There's not a lot of, like, levity in it, I would say. Got it. All right. And so that was super fun. I'm really glad we kind of took that approach. So it's fun to just kind of dig back into some older nonfiction. And obviously, there's a ton of other green nonfiction that came out in the last 10 years. We'll link to all four of the lists that we referenced and took these books off of. But um, I would love uh, to just hear what people kind of some of their favorites of the last 10 years have been, because I think it's an interesting time to look back at kind of the trends that have, and things that have changed over that period of time, for sure. Uh, and so with that, we will wrap up the podcast as we normally would normally do by talking about books we're reading right now. Um, and I have spent the last few weeks and probably will spend most of December playing catch up with nonfiction that I missed reading earlier in the year. So, um, well, now I really want to read The Sixth Extinction, but <laughs> the book that I had on my TBR to read next is uh, Guest House for Young Widows by Azade Mulvaney. Um, and it's a look at how women joined ISIS and then what happened to them after they did that and how... Um, how that movement has a lot of bad things for women in it and that kind of thing. That was a terrible description for that book, but uh, I love her writing. I've loved her previous book, so I'm interested in this one. It's so good. 
It's oh, good. so good. Um, I'm glad that you're going to look at that after the sixth extinction. <laughs> um, so I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm feeling like being coy about the title of this, but I just finished a book about a church cult that um, I'm going to talk about next year when it's coming out. And it's so good and so shocking. And this church cult is still around and like in operation and it makes me so mad. So anyway, get excited for that in 2020. <laughs> gonna happen. Um, and so with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please feel please feel free to take a couple minutes to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast catcher of your choice. Um, those help people find people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Yukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>